Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I would like to begin by paying my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I am coming to you from today. Land where at brainwaves we tell our stories, and land where the traditional custodians have told their stories for many, many years before us, and continue to tell their stories. I would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present, and acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners who are listening today. Hello and welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR, 855am on your dial or on our digital app. My name is Flick Manning, I'm your host and I'm pleased as punch to have you with me today as you round out the end of your day. Brainwaves is a mental health focused show with a lived experience lens and joining me today is Anna Spargo-Ryan. Anna is the author of A Kind of Magic, a memoir about her anxiety, our minds and optimism in spite of it all. She was the inaugural winner of the Horn Prize, is the non-fiction editor at Island Magazine and is an acclaimed non-fiction writer and teacher. Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. Now, Anna, I have actually had the pleasure of both reading your book and listening to the audiobook, which you narrated yourself. Your book and recording is sublime and it's more, but it's, it's got such a warm way that you've communicated your lived experience of mental health. And I feel really grateful to get to talk to you about it today. And honestly, I have more questions than I know we're likely going to have time. For. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to dive Perfect. Right Do it. <laughs> Fabulous. Mm -hmm. So, Anna, let's start off with what does mental health mean to you? I think my answer to this question has changed a bit over the years. Um, When I was a younger person, I thought it meant not being afraid. Um, And, you know, as a very anxious teenager, it meant being able to do things without fear. Mental health to me now is a much more systemic idea. How do we... I guess, how do we have mental health as a society? That's where I I think I fit now, which is what can we do to support people who live with mental illness to be able to uh, fully participate in a society that understands and knows how to treat mental health properly, that they are supported, that they have the resources that they need, that support services are readily available, all these kinds of things. That's more what mental health means to me now. Fabulous answer. Absolutely. <laughs> Fabulous. If I could give out gold stars to you. <laughs> you can. I can give you my address to send a gold star. Oh, look, I will make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're a fan of the sticker too. I've noticed you've been signing your books and popping a sticker in. So it's true. <laughs> now, Anna, what is psychosis and when did you first realise mm. that you may be experiencing it? Mm. Well, psychosis is by definition a, a kind of a break from reality. So it's very hard to explain because I was saying to somebody else, it's like trying to understand what's on the other side of the universe. It's outside of more or less everybody's uh, lived experience. So trying to articulate what that means is very, very difficult suddenly to be outside of like perceiving reality in the normal way that you have perceived it your whole life. What does that seem like? Well, how does that feel? And it's just, it's very hard to find the words to explain what that is like. 
Um, so I've tried to do that in my book a bit, but I, I think I've still fallen short of really the, oh, just the absolute um, uncertainty and fear and inexplicable break in what is normal and everything that you have done and experienced before then is gone. So, you know, it's a fairly significant, um, I guess, mental illness event to have psychotic experiences. Some people have psychotic episodes and some people are psychotic or have psychotic symptoms chronically. I have chronic psychotic symptoms after having psychotic episodes when I was a teenager. So when I was 19, I had two psychotic periods. Um, and I mean, as a 19-year-old, you know, I had just finished school. I didn't know how to even be an adult yet. And so then to try to also contend with being a person who was sitting outside of reality was was very, very hard. Uh, it's still hard, but I back then really didn't have any tools whatsoever to use to try to get me through that. Unlike any other thing I've ever experienced in my life, really. Yeah. And look, I, I think that you've done such a beautiful job of actually describing those incidences in your book. I know with reading it, it was quite sort of harrowing to try and imagine putting myself in, a, in that same sort of boat with you and having that experience. And I don't mm. know that there is a framework that exists mm. that for people to simply understand what's going on, but that's why it's so important that you've shared it. Um, now, what discrimination do you think that you may have faced because of your mental health and then how has that discrimination affected your mental health? <laughs> well, that's it, isn't it? The compounding nature of, of mental health discrimination. I am very lucky as a person in general. You know, I think if you have to be mentally ill, you should try to be mentally ill as a middle-class, white, city-based woman, you know, um, who's otherwise physically able um, and literate, well-educated, all of these things that have helped me very much to navigate the very broken mental health system in a way that becomes increasingly difficult with every other, you know, obstacle that you face as part of a, another part of your demographic profile, I guess. Um, so, I have faced much less discrimination than a lot of people have. And one of the things that I reflect on a lot is that people who are psychotic, people who experience psychosis are at hugely increased risk of life-threatening situations. They're more likely to be arrested. They're more likely to be the victims of violence. They're more likely to die by suicide. All of these things that I would have been at risk of if I didn't have such a supportive and supported network of people in my life who cared about me staying alive um, and who had the means to do that, to keep me housed and fed and safe to the extent that they could. So I, I want to be very clear that that is a significant factor in mental health discrimination and its ongoing repeated compounding impact. I Most of the most of the discrimination I have faced has been in the workplace, which is why I have been a freelancer for the past 11 years, um, that mental health is not well understood by workplaces. It's the times that I have gone to a manager and said, I have really debilitating anxiety. Could I work from home for part of the week? Or would it be okay if I went part-time for a while? Or it's going to affect my capacity to do this part of my job for some of the time. A lot of the time their response has been something like, 
would you help us write a mental health policy? Like, well, that's a thing you should already have. Um, and also I'm, I don't like, I'm really unwell. So I don't know if I'm going to have time to help you write a mental health policy that you should already have so that I can get the leave that I need in order to recover from the, do you see where I'm going? Like, you know, that's been a lot of my experience. People have been well-meaning. This is the most frustrating part about it maybe is that people try to understand, they try to help, they, they try to be compassionate, but ultimately it's annoying when someone that you need to do a job or you need to be a good friend or you need to be a good child or partner or whatever, it's frustrating when they can't just function the way that you want them to. And that has been, I guess, at the root of a lot of the conflict that has occurred as a result of my mental health issues is like, why can't this idea of why can't you just be normal? Um, And at one level, I'm quite sympathetic to the fact that it is difficult it is frustrating and you know but the lack of understanding has meant that I have then been angry with myself that I have internalized a lot of that I'm a burden I should feel guilty and that makes it more difficult obviously increasingly more difficult to feel like I should keep trying to contribute. So there was definitely a period of my life where I felt as though the best thing for everybody would be if I just retreated as far as possible into myself. And that was an extraordinarily detrimental thing for me to have done for myself. It took so much work to climb back out of that thought process. Mm, yeah, you've, you've talked quite extensively in the book as well, even about things like agoraphobia, mm. um, which probably really doesn't get enough discussion or representation in general, but I Mm. I don't think people really understand that compounding nature. And again, you've just described that so beautifully. So thank you for sharing. Now, what aspects of of psychosis and I guess really mental health in general do you think are misunderstood by the general public and health professionals? I think agoraphobia, as you just said, is is very poorly understood. Um, There's a lot of, I've, I have been on the receiving end of a lot of people sort of saying, you know, you say you can't leave your house, but I mean, that's, you're exaggerating, right? The exaggerated nature of mental health in people's perceptions is quite dangerous, that you can't possibly mean that you can't leave your house. You must mean you can't, you know, that's hard to. The difference between being hard and being unable to is very frustrating. So that I think is not very well understood. The thing that has been the hardest for me in my life has been a lack of understanding that I am a real and whole person, that somebody's personhood is not compromised by their mental health issues and that you can live and should have the opportunity to live a full and beautiful life despite the fact that your brain works slightly differently from somebody else's. And that just seems when you say it in that way, it seems like a given, like the fact that my brain is different from yours shouldn't exclude me or preclude me, but it does. And it's not because I can't achieve things. It's because you put limitations on me. And that is where the most fundamental misunderstanding is. People who come to a person who, you know, has either disclosed that they have a certain illness or has used words to describe how they're feeling that somebody else thinks they understand, but they don't. And therefore they make assumptions about what that person's capability is. And I mean, I think that's true of all kinds of chronic illnesses, not just mental illness, but to 
enforce, I guess, a limitation on somebody else based on your perception. That I think is the, yeah, the worst thing about it in my life. Um, in the book, I write a lot about the language that we use for mental health and how that contributes to that, where we have a word called depression or we have a word called anxiety and the very small vocabulary that we have to describe experiences of mental illness and how that also then funnels us into these groups of people who there's a group of anxious people. I know because I've read about anxious people that anxious people can't do X, Y, Z. And so that's how I'm going to engage with them. It's how I'm going to understand them. And it's how, as I said, going how I'm going to put these limitations on that group of people without trying any harder to understand the nuance of their experience. So, yes, so all of those things together, um, underestimating somebody with mental illness, I think, is, um, is the worst part about it. The least well understood thing is what people with complex mental illness and serious mental illness especially are capable of. I had a book launch and... I am not a socially anxious person at all. I love speaking to a crowd. I love meeting new people. I'm just agoraphobic, so I'm scared to go out, but I'm not scared of all the other bits that exist once I'm there. And at my book launch, people kept coming up to me and saying, are you okay? They're like, are you feeling all right? Are you, are you all right? Like you had to, oh, are you feeling okay about speaking in front of, in front of everybody? I'm like, no, I I love these bits. This is like, what do you, what do you mean? Why are you asking me kind of? And of course they're asking because they care about how I'm feeling, but it is representative of this idea that a mentally ill and anxious person looks a certain way and behaves a certain way. And that I, you know, had to keep explaining that, no, no, I'm not, I'm fine doing this part. That's not my anxiety. And I understand that it is a broadly understood way to be anxious but that's kind of the point that I'm trying to make and when I then meet people who expect me to be like a quivering mess and they go oh you don't seem anxious like actually I do seem anxious you just don't know what anxious can look like. Annie you discuss a lot in the book about memory the different kinds of memory and how someone with psychosis travels through time in a different way via memory can you expand on that? So I learned a whole lot of things about memory, but mental time travel part is so our brains exist in this kind of temporal reality where we know that we are in the present day and then we can also understand that something that happened before was in the past and we can understand that something is going to happen in the future and we can imagine that happening. So we can position in our minds ourselves in all parts of the the time continuum, I guess. We're the only species that can do that as far as anybody knows. No other species has this kind of temporal awareness. And actually, we're not born with it either. Babies, human babies don't have that awareness. So we have this kind of unique capacity to move around in time. It's also why we know we're going to die and then fear that, I guess. Um, What I learned was that someone who has certain kinds of mental illness, trauma-related illness especially, experiences I guess, temporal shifts differently. So it's, I think, quite common idea that people with PTSD or CPTSD can get stuck in the past or that the things that have happened a long time ago sit in their short-term memory and so feel like a current threat. That's a very common way of understanding trauma-related illness. And that's part of, I guess, existing on this whole temporal spectrum. The other ways that it affects memory are that People who have experienced trauma tend to remember negative things. They're more likely to remember negative things and they tend to remember things in an overly negative way. It's hard to talk about this without 
sounding like you're discounting the awful nature of the trauma that was experienced. And I struggled with that in the book, which was I'm not trying to say that it wasn't as negative as you remember it or that something didn't happen and you're remembering it that way because you have an illness and so you're more likely to remember something negative. It's not that. It's that the way that we think about what has happened to us in the past is to call up the negative memories first and to understand them in an extreme, like to attribute a lot of negative emotion to them. And that's a really difficult way to build your personality. So if you're a person who's experienced trauma early in your life, whatever it is, it doesn't need to, you know, it can be lots of small traumas or it could be one big traumatic event or it could just be like I was raised by anxious people who reinforced the fact that you should be anxious all the time, that when you are then trying to understand who you are as a person, if these are the sort of building blocks that you have, these negative things, it's very difficult to build a self-assured, confident, stable person if you're always thinking about, you know, this is this is who I am as a person, is someone who terrible things happen to or someone who's a burden or some all those things I said before, someone who's hard to get along with, someone who's self-centered and these sorts of words that we use. And so what I learned about memory was here's a reason why I feel that these are an inherent part of my personality. It's not actually because they are, kind of. It's not because I am these things. It's because the fact that I have the kinds of illnesses that I have, that means that I will focus on these overly negative aspects of my life. One of the things that people with my kinds of illnesses do is um, have a different way of milestoning their life. So someone who doesn't have these illnesses tends to look at things that have happened in their life and understand the signposts, I guess, of their life. This is how I know I've had a life because I graduated from university, I had children, I got married or, you know, these kinds of, <laughs> I'm going to say more obvious signposts of your life, the achievements or or not getting divorced or, you know, someone important to you dying or that is negative memories but that are still clear and and that meets society's expectation of what a life looks like. These are the steps you take to, to kind of form a life. Someone who has personality disorder or who has trauma-related illness is more likely to pick a different kind of milestone, emotional milestone related to something that has made them feel a certain way rather than a sort of objective, literal kind of milestone. And, um, yeah, so all of that is incorporated into how memory works and what we know about ourselves, which is such a fundamental part of how we become a fully developed human. What do we know about ourselves and, therefore, how do we build an identity on that? Beautiful, beautiful answer and so interesting. I think anyone listening to that will be thinking, what are the foundational blocks that I have built my identity on? Now, our final question, because our time has already come to an end, unfortunately, but I'd love to know from your experience, because you've, you've spoken so much in the book about the experiences of sitting in an office with a therapist or going into mm. sort of the emergency room, things like that. How can our medical professionals improve the way that they diagnose and treat people with such complex sort of uh, mental conditions, especially when there's overlapping mental health conditions? Mm. Yeah, my answer to this is to listen. So like I was saying before, the language that we have is so limited, but the people who are experiencing mental illness are using it all the time. 
you know, if you listen to somebody talk about their experience in a clinical setting or because you're their friend or because you're their doctor and you they have come in and said, I need help, or just overhearing them on a train, whatever, they are talking about what that experience is like. And instead of embracing that language that they use so that we can use it to more effectively help them, we discount it in favour of this very limited clinical language. So diagnostic words are just, I mean, I feel like they are increasingly meaningless. Um, labels, you know, people have a lot of opinions about whether or not labels are helpful and and a lot of people don't feel that they are. As I said, an anxious person is different from the next anxious person. Anxiety as a term is not very helpful. It also exists in everyday vernacular now as well. You know, anxiety is a clinical diagnosis, but, well, anxiety disorders are a clinical diagnosis, but anxiety is also a word that we use to describe like feeling nervous before an exam. So how do you differentiate? And what we need to invest more uh, value in to, uh, to appreciate the value of is the yeah this language that already exists that people who are living in that environment living in that community living with those illnesses are using and find the commonalities in it find the meaning in it and then yeah and then use it you know if someone comes into your office and says I feel like some of the time like my throat is closing over and then and then, like, my hands are sort of flying away from my body. Like, well, I mean, that's hard to relate to a diagnostic criteria, except that somebody else told me last week that they also felt like their hands were sort of separate from their body. Could that be a similar thing to what you're talking about? And if it is, do I therefore know a bit more about how I can direct you to get the best help? And all of that is already there the thing that's so aggravating about it is that it's already being used but it doesn't align with the language that they already use to try to diagnose and treat mental illness so in favor of using that language they're ignoring the lived experience and there's just so much to be gained from listening to it um i think metaphor that kind of trying to use someone else's existing language they don't understand what it's like to live with chronic mental illness but we have these other words in common. Can I use our common language to help you understand this thing that is extremely hard to articulate? And that's where that kind of metaphoric language of I feel or, or you know, simile and imagery, I feel like when I look outside, it's like there's a fog across the world or it's like there's glad wrap wrapped around all of the buildings or these things that you as a person who doesn't have mental illness doesn't know what that is like to experience but you can now imagine what it is you can you now have a visual or a some kind of more concrete understanding of what i'm trying to tell you that is much more valuable than saying i feel anxious so yeah listen listen and then use that stuff that you're hearing incorporate it into your practice and then you're going to be able to use the and identify the nuance in the different experiences that people are having to their great benefit yeah, absolutely spot on. I mean, I think lived experience is so important and is a very underutilized skill in all forms mm. of health. You know that that yes that uh, need that so many of them have to just kind of go that doesn't match what I read in the textbook, so therefore it's not relevant. I think we need to change mm. that so beautifully. Where did that? So anyone that's listening that's in any of those fields, or you're studying any of those fields, mm. 
just keep on listening to that bit mm. over and over again. <laughs> Tell you exactly what you need to know. Well, Anna, it has been so fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much for being so vulnerable and authentic in your book and for sharing so much with all of us. It's definitely an essential read. I hope everyone listening goes out and grabs a copy or tunes in and listens to the audiobook. And thank you again for your time today. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Now, it's been a pleasure to share this time with all of you at home, if you're driving home or wherever you are. You can catch the show again next week, same time, same place, or tune into the replay on the 3CR podcast page. As I sign off, I would like to remind each and every one of you that mental health is of equal importance to physical health. So if you haven't done so already today, please take a moment right now to connect the two together. Take a big, deep breath in, a lovely exhale out and treat yourself with kindness. I look forward to chatting to you next time on Brainwaves. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111500. That's 1300 111500. Wellway supports 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.